Thursday the 6th of December 2012, Cefal, Sweden. A call to the emergency services is placed. The caller reveals that he'd been in a serious domestic fight and that he'd been hurt. He then explains that his wife had also been injured, before telling the operator that he had also stabbed his wife's son fatally. The boy's mother claims her son had been protecting her, but his killer alleges a conspiracy. As this spiraling he-said-she-said investigation progresses, several questions ricochet through the minds of the investigators. How had the family of three gone from a peaceful dinner together to a brutal fight and subsequent stabbing? Had it really been self-defense? And why did it take three separate emergency services calls and over an hour before the police and ambulances showed up? Today, let's delve deep as we explore the truth behind the conspiracy of the Sotomayor family murders. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve any further into this case, you may have noticed that we've been covering a few Swedish cases recently. This is in part with the help of Reddit user Rage Bage from Sweden, who has helped find these cases and who has graciously provided us with the court's documents that we use in our coverage. Now, they run a subreddit called Swedish True Crime, so if you're curious to learn more about cases from Sweden, be sure to go check it out. I'll leave a link in the description down below. And without further ado, let's delve right into this case. Background Daniel Patrick Sotomayor was born on the 13th of June 1994 in Sofles, Sweden, to his mother Monica and father Patricio. He had an older brother called Christopher, and from the age of about three or four, both brothers were predominantly raised by their father. Patricio Sotomayor, Daniel's father, had been close with both of the boys and had a strong relationship with them. Now, at some point when they were young, Daniel's mother and father separated, which was likely at the same time that he and his brother went to live with his father at age three or four. At the age of around 15, Daniel met and began a relationship with a girl called Mia Dahe. The relationship was overall really positive, with many friends and family members of the pair stating that they were a good match and that they could see the relationship going on to marriage in the future. Daniel hadn't been the only one to find love though. His mother Monica had met a man called Hans Christian Lunn, known simply as Christian to friends and family. Christine was 15 years younger than Monica, but that age gap didn't halter their commitment to one another, with the pair marrying each other. Monica and Christian lived together in a private home on the outskirts of Sifle, Sweden. Not much more information about Monica and Christian's relationship is publicly available, though we do know that it was devastatingly one that was alluded to have been riddled with domestic violence. There's no concrete evidence available for us to say that their relationship had always been wrong or if the violence had been more of a recent occurrence. But on account of comments later made in this case, it is safe to assume that at the very least, the months leading up to this case had not been loving or easy at all. Lead up to the crime. 
Early in the day on Thursday the 6th of December 2012, Monica and Christian went to pick up Daniel from the accommodation in Sifle in which he and his brother had been living. As the day turned to night, the strained relationship between Christian and Monica grew as tense as ever. As dinner was being prepared, Christian began to drink and quickly became very irritable. Small arguments started on and off throughout the evening. In one instance, Daniel's friend, a girl called Ellen Eld, actually overheard a small fight in the background of a phone call she was having with Daniel. Ellen heard Christian yelling at Monica, shouting, quote, I'll throw you out the door, goddammit. When later questioned about this comment, Christian claims that he'd been on the toilet and Monica had walked in on him, which caused him to get angry at the invasion of privacy. These small fights that had occurred throughout the evening wouldn't come close to the hellish ordeal that was about to unfold. It must be noted at this point that the timeline of events and even the house's layout of fairly confusing, though I've tried my best to describe it as best as I can. I'm also going to put up the floor plan of the house when I mention the rooms and where they go, so hopefully that will be of some help. Essentially, all the parties that would be interviewed about the following events had reason to admit or even fabricate things in their statements to avoid blame, so keep that in mind too. Details of the crime. At some point around 9pm in the evening of Thursday the 6th of December 2012, Christian became physically aggressive towards Monica. This was something that, horrifically, and by his own admission, was something that wasn't uncommon. Though on this occasion, Christian was armed with a knife. It isn't clear what exactly happened to instigate this violence towards Monica. However, due to Christian's later comments about how normal such violence was, it's likely that there had been no reason behind the outburst, bar the fact that he had been drunk and had just decided he wanted to hurt his wife. This sudden violence with a knife caused Daniel to come to his mother's defense. Daniel yelled at Christian, quote, don't touch my mum. The altercation quickly became more and more heated, exaggerated by the alcohol consumed that night by seemingly all parties. Christian, who had been yielding a knife, was outraged by the fact that Daniel had stepped in to protect his mother Monica, and in his anger, Christian and Daniel fought one another in the kitchen. It was at this point in the fights that Christian stabbed Daniel in the chest with such force that the knife bent at the tip. Daniel panicked, adrenaline running through his system and fearing for his life, so he ran into the bathroom and locked the door. And as Daniel ran to the bathroom, he fell back against the refrigerator, already heavily bleeding. Daniel's mother, Monica, also panicked, frozen at what she should do and watching in horror as her husband, Christian, took a spoon from the kitchen and tried to pick the lock of the bathroom door so that he could continue the assault on the 18-year-old. Well, I'm really sorry, but... A spoon to pick a lock? A spoon to pick a lock? Out of all the things to get from the kitchen to pick a lock with, a spoon would probably be my last choice. I'm gonna be honest there. It's stupid. After being unable to pick the bathroom door lock with the spoon, are we surprised? No. Christian began to kick the bathroom door in so that he could get to Daniel. At some point during this, Monica tried to get Christian to stop, which saw Christian turn the knife on Monica. Christian slashed Monica's throat, causing a deep laceration in what can only be assumed the hope that the cut would kill her. After being struck by the knife, Monica ran into the kitchen and armed herself with a knife too. She took this knife and attacked Christian back with it 
did, managing to slash his arm and badly injure him. With Christian disarmed by the attack and distracted by the pain, Monica took the opportunity to call 112 for help, which is the number for the emergency services in Sweden. It's hard to pinpoint an exact timeline of events, even with these emergency calls, but what we do know is that at some point, likely during the first 112 call placed by Monica, Daniel was seen laying on the bathroom floor by his mother Monica, who naturally began to panic more. By this point, Daniel had lost a lot of blood and was still bleeding heavily. Due to the location of the stab wound on his chest, Daniel was bleeding out rapidly, and his mother Monica knew that she didn't have long to act. The blood loss would kill Daniel in mere minutes. Daniel, with this life-threatening injury, managed to move out of the washroom and into the small laundry slash bathroom, which was located next to it. In the laundry room, Daniel collapsed to the floor. The 18-year-old spent his final moments on the floor of that small room, before Daniel tragically succumbed to his wounds and passed away due to the blood loss. Now it's important to note that several 112 emergency calls were placed in the 30 or so minutes following the fight from both Monica and Christian. The first call was made at about 25 past 9 in the evening or 21.25 p.m. and as we know that call was placed by Monica. The transcripts of this call showed Monica screaming and panicking, yelling that quote he'd slit her throat and that she was going to die. The operator tried to question further but wasn't able to get a cohesive response from Monica other than her telling him quote he's trying to kill me. It was at that point that Christian took the phone from Monica and spoke to the operator. His conversation with the operator was intermittently interrupted by Monica's yelling as he tried to explain what happened to the emergency services. Eventually, Kristen yelled at Monica, telling her to stop screaming before moving into a different room in the house. Kristen told the emergency services that he'd been cut badly and that his wife Monica had also been badly cut. He told the operator that Daniel was very badly wounded. Christine specifically asked that both ambulance and police officers be dispatched and told them the address of the house that they were in. Now it was at that point that the operator told Christian that help would arrive in around 10 minutes. Notably, no instructions for CPR or for any other first aid techniques were provided at all during the duration of this call. And so the three of them waited, with each minute passing of feeling like an eternity, but nobody came. After 10 minutes had passed, Christian decided to call the 112 emergency services hotline once again. He demanded to know if help was actually on the way, because nothing, no one had shown up yet. And the operator, who had been a different person than that in the first call, asked Christian which call for help he was talking about, to which he replied, quote, well, that applied to damn murder and damn stuff. The operator then asked for the address again, which Christian provided before demanding to know where the help was. The operator responded by saying, well, they run on alarms. They cannot drive faster. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just reading that part of the transcripts, 
really angers me. It really angers me. Such a snarky response to somebody in a crisis when people's lives are on the line is just so unprofessional in my eyes. And Christian was also outraged by this response. He requested once again that the authorities hurry up, as by this point, Daniel had effectively already passed away. During this second call, Christian expressed to the operator that he'd felt that what had happened that night had been mostly Monica's fault. He told the operator about Monica, saying, quote, it's her fault that it turned out like this tonight. Christian swiftly hung up with the emergency services and once again waited for the authorities to arrive. And by 47 minutes past nine, 10 minutes after placing the second call, they still hadn't shown up. Christian subsequently decided to place a third call to 112 emergency services. And this third call was at best, and if you'll excuse my language, an absolute shit show. As with the past two calls, the screams of Monica could be heard in the background of the call. As this third call began, it seemed almost as if Christian hadn't been aware that the call had been answered yet, with a transcript starting with him saying to Monica that if she had been quote, less fucked up, then this would never have happened, and that Daniel would still be alive. Christian then realised that his call had been connected, and told the operator that help had still not arrived, and that Daniel was definitely dead. The operator asked Christian if CPR had been tried, which caused Christian to become more outraged. Christian shouts at the operator, telling them that it's too late, and that they had actually tried CPR earlier. By this point, nearly 30 minutes had passed since the first 112 call had been placed, in which Christian had explain the severity of the situation at hand. Christian told the operator that he and Monica had been bleeding heavily for the duration that they had been waiting for emergency services and that Daniel had bled out and passed away on the floor. The operator once again suggested that they try to perform CPR on Daniel and even had a nurse join the call to give advice and as you can imagine this angered Christian and Monica more. In the background of the call Monica can be heard yelling and screaming that it was too late and that her son had died. This was as Christine began to challenge the operator and nurse directly, asking why help had still not arrived. The operator tried to reassure them once more that police and ambulances were still en route, and that they should try CPR once more, to which Christian screamed at them, quote, I called you an hour ago, you must be the dumbest thing I've ever talked to. When Christian was met with the same excuse of, quote, they can only go so fast, they're still coming, Christian shouted, quote, go to hell instead. The operator and the nurse pressed Christian harder and insisted that CPR should be conducted on Daniel, which was when Monica grabbed the phone and screamed down the line, quote, do you understand? Daniel is already dead. This third and final call with emergency services ended soon afterwards, leaving Monica and Christian both badly injured and alone with the body of 18-year-old Daniel on the laundry room floor. After waiting for the first responders to arrive for nearly an hour, Christian decided that enough was enough, and he took things into his own hands. He loaded Daniel's body into the front passenger seat of his car. According to Monica, she didn't see Daniel being loaded into the car, but did remember that Christian yelled at her, quote, shut up, are you coming? I'm leaving now. Monica eventually climbed into the back seat of the car and Christian began to drive them away from their house and into town. And it was only after they had left their house that the authorities finally showed up to the family home. Though obviously when the authorities knocked on the door, nobody answered. Due to the nature of the call reported to the police, the authorities forced entry into the property. The scene that they witnessed when they entered the building was one of horror. Meanwhile, Christian and Monica pulled into McDonald's parking lot and once again, called the police. Though, 
Unlike each call before, this time the authorities actually showed up. When the police arrived, they found Daniel's body still in the front seat of the car. Monica was lying across the back seats of the vehicle, and Christian was found standing outside of the car with his arm wrapped in a piece of cloth. Monica had also tried to dress her wound poorly with a piece of clothing. Now it must be noted that there are several versions of events regarding Daniel's actual time of death. Some sources detail that Daniel had passed away while Christian had been driving the car, though both Monica and Christian had insisted on the numerous 112 emergency services calls that Daniel had passed away while still in the house. I took a closer look at the crime scene photographs taken, and an image of Daniel taken while he was in the front seat of the car showed no new blood or blood pooling from his wound. In fact, the image shows a clean puncture. If Daniel had been alive and was bleeding out in the car, there would have been considerably more blood on both him and on the car seats and interior. The photographic evidence, therefore, is not consistent with the reported facts that Daniel had succumbed to his injuries in the car, but rather did sadly pass away back at the house and was moved post-mortem. Paramedics finally took Monica and Christian via ambulance to receive medical care, while Daniel's remains were taken to the office of the medical examiner to undergo an autopsy. Investigation now, due to the confusing nature of this case's court documents, we've had to determine the order of events via crime scene photographs and evidence of the like. As I mentioned earlier, the accounts from both Christian and Monica were sketchy at best. We're going to be taking a close and detailed look at the autopsies, medical assessments, and testimonies with the hope of uncovering the truth of what actually happened. The investigators almost immediately began to catalogue the family's home to try to establish the truth of what happened that night. One of the rooms that the detectives took particular interest in had been the bedroom. Blood droplets and bloody footprints were found on the floor leading in and out of the room, and a large vacuum cleaner had been pulled into the middle of the floor, which also had loose droplets of blood over the top, meaning it had been likely moved after the knife violence had occurred. The droplets had been splattered on the top in such a way that the source of the blood had to have been from directly above the vacuum itself. Now, this led investigators to believe that it had likely been Christian, who'd been bleeding from his arm, that had moved the vacuum cleaner. The living room and other hallways on the downstairs level of the property also featured blood droplets and various footprints throughout, detailing to the detectives just how hectic the house had become during and after the knife attacks. Now the reason I mention that vacuum cleaner is because later on both Monica and Kristen would be asked about it in their interviews and on the stand during the trial, so keep what I've said in mind for a little bit later on in this video. Before we can get to that though, we have to take a look at both the autopsy and hospital assessment reports. Daniel's autopsy highlighted a large variety of wounds that he'd sustained on the night of the incident. His body was sparsely covered from head to toe in bruises, scuffs, and scratches. Notably, his hands featured various bruises and scrapes consistent with injuries received during a fight. Specifically, his right hand featured a large bruise on the proximal knuckle of his pinky finger. This finding backs up with the accounts of both Monica and Christian that the fights that had occurred were of notable violence. Daniel's bottom lip had been torn from where his piercing had been ripped out during the fight with Christian. There were also three further long scratches down the back of Daniel's right shoulder and rib area, further indicating the level of violence that had happened. Even his legs and feet showed fresh bruises and bumps. The stab wound that ultimately proved fatal had been about an inch wide and had hit very close to the vital organs in his chest, which would have hit several major veins. The location of this wound was the primary factor in Daniel's death, but on top of that factor, the depth of the wound itself 
also played a major role. The wound went deep enough to hit bone, which we can actually tell by the photograph of the bent knife found on the kitchen floor by the investigators. The investigators, alongside the autopsy report of Daniel, took a closer look at the medical assessments of both Monica and Christian to try to establish further what had actually happened and to see whether the physical evidence supported their testimony or not. Monica's injuries were, like Daniel's, quite varied. She had bruises and scratches, some of which were fresh, but notably also some that had been inflected prior to the night of the murder. This fact, the discovery of historical injuries, supported the claim that Christian had been physically abusive towards Monica and that it had happened on numerous occasions prior to the murder taking place. Monica's fresh wounds included scratches and scrapes that were similar to the wounds Daniel had sustained and were consistent with the kind of wounds that you'd expect to see following a fight like the one that had occurred. Her hands were badly bruised and swollen from these various injuries with scratches and other abrasions on her arms, abdomen and face. These injuries, however, paled in comparison to the large laceration that she had sustained across her neck. The large cuts went from the side of her neck to the front of her throat, enough to have opened the skin to reveal the muscles beneath, but not deep enough to have punctured the major arteries or cut into her trachea. Monica had lost a lot of blood as a result of her injuries and required immediate medical treatment. She would end up making a full recovery after staying in hospital for a few months. Christian's medical assessments, like Monica's and Daniel's, showed that he had sustained minor injuries as a result of the fighting that had occurred in the kitchen that night. Most of his injuries had been on his arms, consisting of bruising to large cuts, though these two paled in comparison to the large cuts he had sustained from Monica towards the end of the fight. This laceration spanned across the top of his left arm and, just like Monica's, was deep enough to have split skin and revealed the muscle beneath, but it hadn't been deep enough to hit any major veins or arteries. Christine would make a full recovery after receiving medical treatments. This was all of the physical evidence the authorities had to establish what had happened. The only thing left was the testimonies from Monica and Christian. Trial and Conviction on the 20th of March 2013, both Monica and Christian took to the stand to testify and give their version of events. Though Christian's testimony was the most descriptive and at first glance appeared to have been better and more accurate information, you have to remember that he did fatally stab an 18-year-old and he has plenty of reason to be deceptive and to fill in gaps inaccurately in order to avoid further persecution. Monica's testimony was also not the best. She seemed to have a lot of gaps in her memory of what had happened, but alongside the one one to emergency services transcripts, the crime scene photographs and evidence, the autopsy reports and medical assessments, these testimonies helped to paint a pretty clear picture of what happened. On the 20th of March 2013, Monica testified her side of the story before the courts. Monica's testimony was a bit spotty, as there had been things that various other people had claimed had happened that she said that she couldn't remember. A reasonable explanation for this might be that she truly compartmentalised and discarded those more insignificant memories from that traumatic night away, as it would make sense that her brain would highlight the larger, more traumatic events rather than the small altercations that occurred prior to it. Further, everybody's brain acts differently to protect you from such traumatic events, so it could be argued that her lack of memory had been a response to the traumatic fight and murder of her son. On the flip side, however, it is also entirely possible that she was avoiding answering various questions in order to save herself. It's further possible that she might have been trying to cover for herself and for Christian, but 
That's just speculation. Whatever the case, Monica's inability or unwillingness to share clearer details of that night made her testimony effectively useless. One example of this was that despite both Daniel's friend and Christian testifying that Christian had yelled at Monica to get out of the bathroom, Monica stated that she hadn't been sure about that situation and couldn't even remember it happening. Further, there was a line of questioning concerning dogs that they had in the house, as Monica had initially mentioned it to the investigators and had indicated that the argument had originally begun over the dogs. Then Monica stated on the stand that she had no recollection of the dogs or discussion about them, so the prosecutor decided it not to have been of relevance. On the stands, the prosecutor asked Monica if the mop or vacuum had been used that evening, to which Monica replied that she hadn't been sure and that she didn't recall using them. When asked if there had been any cleaning at any point, she again stated that she wasn't sure. She didn't know that the cleaning supplies had been used the night before, but was unable to confirm or deny that they had been used on the night of Daniel's murder. The timeline that Monica shared while on the stand was quite different from the one that Christian shared. Monica's timeline couldn't be entirely supported by the crime scene photograph evidence, with several obvious events supported by evidence being omitted from her story. Monica told the court that Daniel and Christine had been arguing with one another in the kitchen on the bench. She stated that Daniel then got up to go to the bathroom and that Christine had followed him. Monica claimed to have then heard Daniel yell something along the lines of, quote, fucking idiots. According to her, Christine then came out of the bathroom and into the kitchen, doing something of the sink before returning to the bathroom. She stated that she didn't recall hearing the sound of the door being messed with or kicked in and wasn't sure when the door had been broken, which if you take a look at this photograph of the bathroom door, it's very hard for me to believe that you wouldn't hear this door being kicked in to such a degree that it would be damaged this badly. Monica was asked about a glass ornament which was found broken at the scene that had been hanging on the bathroom door. This glass ornament was a type of weather apparatus that would change as the weather changed like a barometer. It was constructed of a kind of glass that was very difficult to break and when it did break it would have been really loud. Monica claimed that she had no idea when the glass ornament could have been broken. One of the only things Monica claimed to have heard was her son Daniel screaming, quote, help mum. It was when she heard Daniel call for her that she ran into the bathroom to find Daniel on the floor with Christian standing over him. Monica claimed to have hit Christian at this point out of pure anger that he'd hurt her son. Now a strange aspect of this was the 112 emergency calls that had been placed. As we know, the first 112 call was placed at 25 minutes past nine and it was actually placed with Daniel's phone by Monica before this call was taken over by Christian. This is a verifiable fact due to the transcripts of the calls. But despite this, Monica claimed that she didn't use the phone to make the call, stating that she didn't know how to use Daniel's phone. She told the courts, quote, I can't with touch mobiles like that and I couldn't even open it when they went to the store. Monica claimed to not remember when or how Daniel got into the car, but said that she did recall Christine saying something along the lines of, quote, shut up, I'm leaving now, are you coming or not? Monica was questioned about the lip piercing that Daniel had that was found on the floor of the bathroom after being ripped out of his lip. Monica claimed that she didn't know if he had it in while going to the bathroom, but that she did remember it being in earlier that day. She also said that she remembered it being out when she found him on the floor. When Monica was shown the reenactments of the fight on the kitchen floor with Christine based on Christine's accounts, Monica protested it, saying that she remembered it being completely different. On the same day that Monica gave her testimony in court on March 20th, 2013, Christian testified his side of the story. Christian's side of the story is one of claimed panicked self-defense. In both his testimony and in the 112 calls made the night of the murder, Christian specifically mentions being panicked and explicitly used the terms, quote, self-defense and, quote, self-defense mode. He insisted that he had nearly been the victim of a homicide planned by Monica and Daniel, and the story he told supported that. 
though only if you were to read his side of the story and nothing else. In his testimony, Christian paints the following picture. The three of them had been all drinking and preparing dinner. There was tension between Christian and Monica, which meant that there had also been tension between Christian and Daniel. At one point, Christian went to the bathroom and Monica walks in on him. He then screams at Monica to get out and threatened to throw her out of the bathroom door if she didn't leave him there alone. This was how Christian explained the yelling that Daniel's friend had heard over the phone. This event only added to the tension between the three, tension which continued to snowball as the evening progressed. Christian then claims that another argument broke out and stated that he became physically aggressive with Monica, quote, as he usually did. According to him, Daniel yelled at him to, quote, not touch his mum and then also began becoming physically aggressive. This fight, Christian explained, had been a one-on-one -on -one fight in the kitchen. Monica had allegedly become distressed at seeing her son being hit and had grabbed a knife, using it to try to kill Christian or so Christian claims. Christian then allegedly managed to disarm Monica, throwing the knife out into the hallway. He then claims that Daniel disengaged from the fight and retrieved the knife from the hallway before returning to put Christian into a headlock, using the knife to threaten him. Christian told the courts that he managed to disarm Daniel again and got up off the ground. It was at that point, according to Christian's testimony, that Daniel ran to the bathroom and locked himself in. The prosecutors challenged Christian about the blood found smeared on the refrigerator, asking him how it got there. Christian responded that he thought Daniel could have brushed up against him, which put the blood on the refrigerator. Importantly, Christian claims that he didn't remember anyone actually getting hurt during the fight on the kitchen floor, but that it had been entirely possible that they all managed to get cut during the altercation. Prosecutors brought up the fact that Daniel's lip piercing had been found on the floor of the bathroom, to which Christian claims it must have gotten caught on the sweater that he had been wearing and that it must have ripped out during the fight. When asked if he thought that he might have been the one to stab Daniel, Christian explained that he had been fearing for his life and believed he was fully panicked, going into a quote self-defense mode where he did what he needed to do to survive. Specifically, Christian said quote, I cannot say that, that I did it, that I thrust the knife into him, but I thrust it at him, then if it's so unfortunate, I'm the one who did it. Christian was also asked about the obvious cleaning attempts in the bathroom and laundry room, as well as why blood went as far into the house as the bedrooms. Christian responded by reaffirming that there had been a lot of quote running around after Daniel had been Stabbed. When asked to clarify, Christian doubled down that he didn't recall himself or Monica cleaning up anything after the fact, even after being shown the evidence of the blood spattered over the top of the vacuum cleaner. At the end of this trial, charges were brought against both Christian and Monica. Christian was charged with murder, attempted murder, serious illegal driving, and serious drunken driving, and Monica was charged with aggravated assault. It was now the burden of the court to determine if Monica or Christian were guilty of the charges brought against them. Now, it must be noted that it's unclear whether Christian was found guilty or whether some kind of plea deal was made, but what we do know is that he was successfully charged as guilty on the aforementioned charges. His sentencing was difficult for a variety of reasons. One thing commonly agreed upon was that Christian had been the one responsible for killing Daniel, and that it had been Christian alone that had been the one to plunge the knife into the 18-year-old boy's chest. It was undeniable, beyond reasonable doubts, that Christian murdered Daniel on the evening of the 6th of December 2012. What made the sentencing complicated was Christian Christian's claims of self-defense. Though Monica and various pieces of evidence painted a picture of violence and rage from Christian, due to the wound he had sustained, it couldn't be dismissed that he could have felt his life was at risk. And due to the fact that both Monica and Christian were both injured, and a majority of the investigation was based on first-person and secondary he-said-she-said accounts, proving beyond a reasonable doubt that Christian hadn't acted in self-defense was hard to do. And conclusively, with all things considered and all other options explored, the sentence served to Hans Christian Loon.
for the murder of Daniel, attempted murder of Monica for serious illegal driving and serious drunken driving, those drinking driving charges he got after um, driving to the McDonald's car parking lot, he got eight years imprisonment in a Swedish prison. As you can imagine, many people were not satisfied with this sentence, feeling it to have been far too short considering that he'd killed a teenage boy after assaulting his mother. But that was ultimately the sentence that Christian received. In Monica's case, the charge of aggravated assault was actually dropped against her, as they were unable to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that she hadn't acted in self-defense either. And so, Monica was released. Aftermath. In the aftermath of this case, various people in Daniel's life actually came forward following the murder and attack to file claims against Christian for emotional damages caused by Daniel's death. On the 3rd of March 2013, Daniel's girlfriend Mia brought forward a claim that Daniel's death had put a major emotional strain on her, causing her physical pain as well. For this, she claims 50,000 Swedish kroner, which is just shy of 4,000 Great British pounds, or around $4.7,000 in today's money, with interest until the day of payments. This interest would begin from the 6th of December 2012, which was the day that Daniel was murdered. On that same day, Daniel's older brother, Christopher, claimed for the same amount as Daniel's girlfriend, as did Daniel's biological father, Patricio. Altogether, these claims totaled 150,000 Swedish kroner, which is just under 12,000 Great British pounds, or just under 15,000 US dollars in today's money. I couldn't establish concretely the outcome of these interpersonal lawsuits, but I sincerely hope that they were awarded with the money that they claimed, and then some. Closing statements. This case was sadly one that didn't receive that much attention in the media. Of the few discussions online about the case, many were speculative and mean-spirited. Discussions and forums tended to use terms such as, quote, white trash to describe Daniel, Christian, and Monica as if such violence had been expected from them. Much in the same way that when gang-based violence takes place in some areas of the world, they are only small footnotes in the news. The deaths and victims associated with those organizations aren't seen as important or as worthy of notes as murders that don't have the label of gang-related. This family was described with such horrific language, as if they deserved what had happened, and that genuinely breaks my heart. Some discussions online showed some to have not been shocked to have seen Christian's name involved. One of the people commenting mentioned that he was a local to the area and claims Christian to have been that quote, sort of guy to be involved with something like that. One person even implies that he had other issues with violence, with substance abuse being discussed, though I have to state that no such discussion, clarification, or evidence existed within the court documents about this case. It doesn't matter if there had been an affiliation with drugs or even gangs. Daniel was just 18 years old. He had his entire life ahead of him. He had a girlfriend who it seems he would go on to marry. He had so much left to give to the world and that was taken from him by Christian. Overall, this entire case seems to have been a snowball of normalized domestic violence within the home and an unhealthy, toxic and dangerous relationship that was long past its need to end. I've left links in the description to domestic violence charities if you or somebody you know has been affected by the topics discussed in this video. And that's everything that I have for you in today's episode. Make sure you subscribe to the channel and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video and for that being said I'll see you in the next case our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. 
Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.